You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Sit down. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. May I ask why? Schmiertspionem. Schmiertspionem? was a barrier operation in Stalin's time. It was deactivated 20 years ago. Two of our agents are dead. My condolences. We had nothing to do with it. Welcome to the 602 Club, Trek FM's General Geek Show. I'm your host here, Matthew Rushing, and I'm just so excited to be here. Uh, it's, a, it's a refined and classy night as we are coming at you live from Kabuchi. I know a great restaurant there, and everybody's really excited to be digging in. But uh, before we get started, just want to remind you, you can find... Trek FM all over the place. We're on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. And of course, the 602 Club is there. Hit us up with a start rating and review. It's been a while since we've had one of those, and it really does help people find the show and help it grow. Um, so if you love what we do here, or if you have some suggestions or whatever, just hit us up. Let us know what you're thinking, and we'll thank you for your review on the show. Also, uh, make sure you're following us on Twitter, at TrekFM. Um, and while you're in iTunes or ever, wherever you're getting your podcasts, hit subscribe. Because the moment that I publish a show, you will get the show. So uh, make sure you're doing that. Also, you can uh, find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Uh, we've got our own website at Trek.FM, which while you're over there, uh, if you are maybe wanting to send us an email, you can go to Trek.FM slash contact. Choose the show, choose the 602 Club, and that'll come to me and anybody who else who's on that week. And then uh, last but not least, um, we've got our listeners-only discussion group, which is a great place to converse with all of the fans of Trek FM and, of course, the 602 Club. Um, you'll want to find that on Facebook, and it's called The Babel Conference. So while you're on Facebook... Type the Babel Conference and you'll find us. Or if you are on our website and you're on any of the show pages, you'll see a little button that says Discussion. You can hit that and it'll bring you over and we can let you right into the group. But um, I'm really excited because we are diving in to James Bond again. And, of course, you know that if we're doing James Bond, that we have to have the one, the only, John Champion. It's a pleasure to be here again, of course. Talking about Bond with uh, two of the people I look forward to talking about Bond with more than anybody in the world. And, uh, and tonight is a, uh, a momentous show, a momentous occasion. Uh, it absolutely is. And to have this momentous event, we have to have Christy Morris. Hello. Thank you. I'm so happy to be back and, you know, having Ruby pour me something. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, man. She's pulled out the good stuff, too, tonight, because uh, I think she was really excited that we are going to be finally... Uh, John, I think you put it correctly. This is a momentous shift. It's not very often that you have a new Bond to talk about. 
And tonight we move into the Timothy Dalton era, which is very exciting. Um, We made it through the Roger Moore era, and unfortunately, as I think everybody knows, um, that era kind of ends on a whimper. Um, So the question becomes, as we continue Bond, can we reignite the spark of hope in this character? And I think... It's so interesting because there are two things they have to figure out as they're continuing Bond. And one, what's the story going to be? And I wanted to ask you guys, Sibir, because I thought it was so fascinating that they actually thought about kind of going back and doing a prequel to the series. So going back and talking about James Bond as a younger character, maybe his coming up in the ranks and those kind of things. And so I wanted to ask you... Is that an idea that appeals to you? Because even though they didn't do it here, is it still something you might want to see? It's something that I would have wanted to see, actually. And, you know, initially you think about it, you're like, well, who would be the right actor to play a young Bond anyway, I think would be the most difficult choice. But I think that it's something that you're sort of always left to wonder, you know, once he becomes 007, we already know all of that stuff, but we don't know how he got to that point and what kind of family life he had or, you know, if he had a first love or anything before he officially started working as 007. So I I, I would have found that interesting personally. Well, I mean, I I think we we got the reboot that we all wanted when we got Daniel Craig. So we we got a a solid four upcoming fifth story. Uh, We got a solid four stories that tell Bond's backstory. I think in 1987, it wasn't the right time to reboot, restart, reinvent Bond. Um, Although what we do get is a a stylistic reinvention and a bit more grounding with Bond here. But I think had this happened in 87, I, I think that you're then faced with the question of, well, what do you do? Do we do a period piece? Do we put Bond back in the early 60s and try to tell a story that's there? Or do we ignore what has come before? And and we all know that Bond has played very fast and loose with continuity. Nothing about this series is strictly contiguous from, from one film to another. There are little hints they just say, like, these are character traits that kind of show up again. Like, we, we talked about uh, uh, Bond visiting Tracy's grave. That that, that shows uh, a tie between two different Bonds of two different eras. But um, I'm, I'm glad that they did what they did here and just kept it contemporary. Didn't try to force anything to fit um, and, and didn't try to reinvent the franchise. I think it was all pretty much the right decision at the right time. That it seemed more like it was uh, the next chapter in a long novel rather than starting over. Yeah, Yeah, very much so. You know, it's something that I've uh, talked to my friend Nick Anastasio about, and he and I have discussed the idea of, you know, going back and telling a 60s era story um, and not necessarily it being a prequel, um, because we have gotten that now, uh, as you said, John, just marvelously with uh, the Daniel Craig films. Whether you love every single one of them, I think uh, pound for pound, Daniel Craig's era has been the most successful um, because each one has been a quality film. Um, you know, John, you and I talked about Quantum of Solace, and I think um, 
you know, I had always really enjoyed the film for the most part. It's not perfect. It's not great uh, in the sense of like uh, Casino Royale. But when you put those two together, they made a nice duology and then they created a nice part of that quadrilogy that we've gotten so far. Uh, and so, but the idea of kind of going back and, and maybe going back to the 60s and creating another adventure with Bond there, I think is something that you could do now. I agree with you, John. I think uh, that in the late 80s, I don't know if we're quite at a place where people would accept Bond going backwards like that. Mm-hmm. I think that's something you could possibly consider doing after Daniel Craig, though, because I think people might be okay with that. Um, So, because you can always craft interesting adventures for him to do there, um, and it I don't know, it would be kind of fun to see a film... uh, I guess we saw with the man from uncle, I feel like how you could really do it. It could work, you know, Um, you can really make that work. So I I agree with you though. I don't think this was quite the right time. So they, they don't go with that idea, but they do know they need something. They need it to feel fresh by going backwards. And so they go back to Fleming and they pull out his short story, uh, Living Daylights, which expires kind of the first bit of the film, the opening credit sequence, and then um, some of what we get in, in the beginning of the film. And I thought it was interesting because their idea is to kind of ground him again, basically kind of the way that they wanted to do um, with For Your Eyes Only. Um, get it back to that. You could still have gadgets and everything, but you want Bond as a character to feel more grounded. And I think that's something that they um, work very hard on in this film is to make Bond almost feel more real again. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know for you guys how you feel. they it, Do they pull that off? Do they make Bond feel a little bit more human here again? For me, yeah. I think that especially with having Timothy Dalton as Bond. Um, I, I do think it's hard at first for people probably to switch from knowing more for so long, having to go with this completely new person um, taking the role, because there is a distinct difference in the way that Dalton and Moore carried themselves. Um, I think that Dalton comes across tougher, um, but yeah, definitely more real, um, if only for the locations that they're going to, um, just the things that they're doing there are not that, um, outlandish, you know, he's not, not going to the moon or anything like that. Well, um, I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's always going to be my go-to, um, you know, they're skiing or there's, you know, a milk delivery guy being taken down, um, it's everyday kind of things that we're all used to, even though it's in foreign countries that maybe we haven't been to. So I think that they did a good job of, yeah, making him more grounded and real in um, everyday things. Yeah, even just right from the beginning, right from that uh, pre-credit sequence, you you feel uh, the reality of the mission that well the the training slash the mission when it turns real. Um, you you feel the um, uh, sort of the the more grounded physical presence that Timothy Dalton has. I mean, look, I remember when this movie came out that the only Bond I had known for my entire life was Roger Moore. 
the occasional Sean Connery VHS tape that that I would get to watch. But it's a very different experience seeing that than seeing something on the big screen in the anticipation of new Bond every couple of years being Roger Moore. But Roger Moore inhabited the role for more than 10 years, and that's a good long run. I remember when this came out, just feeling immediately like this was something different, something new, and this guy was cut from a different cloth. And that immediately brings you in. And they, they hit all the hallmarks right in that opening credit sequence very wisely. They they give the characters, or a particular Bond, they, they give some gravitas to what's happening, they give you a twist, and then they give you the other twist at the end where they make it a little sexy. And so it's like everything you want out of Bond right there in a couple of minutes before we even get to the credits. So it, mm -hmm. it was really wisely plotted out the way they gave us this new guy. And I like um, the subtle way that they bring Bond into this movie because, you know, usually in the Roger Moore films, it felt like pretty much from the get go, they're showing you his face and reminding you we're following the adventures of the Roger Moore Bond. Whereas this, I felt like they were kind of understanding that this may be a difficult transition for fans um, to go from Moore to Dalton. And so they didn't immediately go straight to Dalton as the one in the action. Um, you know, that he's sort of one of three guys and you eventually get to him and then you realize, oh, he's going to be Bond. It's a little bit like the opening of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, where we don't spend a lot of time on Bond's face. We, we, we None, really, until we hit the end of the scene. So it's easing you into it. Well, that mm -hmm. never happens in the other film. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I I like what both of you are saying because I think it's it's the way that this movie begins. It, it just lets you know that we we are kind of back to a a little bit more of a grounded, somewhat visceral feel. Um, we're gonna have fun, you know, as the landing on the boat and saying I'll be there in a couple hours mm -hmm. lets you know. But I, I feel like. Even just Dalton doing so much of his own stunt work um, there really helps sell that this guy is this character. He is this kind of action-packed, and he he is a little bit more... Um, there. There's something going on behind the eyes that feels very Bond from the novels of he is a cold-blooded killer. He's a stone-cold killer who pretends to not be with people. Like, because there are mm -hmm. moments in the film where he will just turn it on and it, he's scary. Um, and I love that, you know, because I feel like that really captures the, the bond. And so I feel like they just find a way, though, in all of that to also just make the character more human. But I also feel like that the, the story, um, they find a way to make it reflect the world of the 80s, yes. where we are in the late 80s. Um, there are some parts of it that are slightly outlandish with some of the characters because it's Bond. But there's a sense of reality to the situation in all of that. And I think everything there kind of makes Bond and the character feel relevant and comfortable with where they are and this is a really good job with writing a script it, it's been a while since i would call out that the bond movie actually had a decent script really um this one they did a fantastic job i think of of really putting together a story that felt so, like something that had come from fleming 
and felt more like that character that we saw in Dr. No or, um, you know, For Your Eyes Only or, you know, The Spy Who Loved Me or Goldfinger, you know, From Russia With Love. Those kind of hallmark Bond films, this just, I felt like it it feels more like that. Mm -hmm. So interesting behind the scenes on who would be Bond um, because there were a lot of tough choices they had to make. And I thought this was fascinating. And uh, watching the screen test, Sam Neill, everybody knows from Jurassic Park, I think the most, um, tested. Everybody loves him. They think he's great. They want him to be Bond. And Broccoli's like, nope. <laughs> what Which, is the problem? <laughs> I, yeah, a huge problem. Because if, if Cubby doesn't like him, then you're not going to have him be Bond. But uh, watching that screen test... He was really good. He kind of felt almost like an extension of uh, a, a little bit or slightly more grounded Roger Moore. He even kind of has that look almost. So I was surprised that there's something that Cubby just doesn't like, and he never explains it in any of the extras. But, man, can you can you imagine Sam Neill as James Bond? I love Sam Neill, and, and I, I would have liked to have seen, seen his take on uh, James Bond. I mean... I'm glad that things played out the way they did, but yeah, that that's um, that's too bad. Yeah, you immediately think of just how charming he can be in the other roles that we've seen him in, and you know, I mean, even in Jurassic Park, and then it also he can kind of play both sides. I feel like he can be that charming um, 007 kind of vibe. And then he can also come across as very like fatherly, but Bond even does that sometimes as well. So I think that Sam would have been great, but yeah, I'm still glad that we get Dalton too. I just kind of wish now that we could have fit Sam in somewhere. Well, and what's fascinating is that this is also the point where Brosnan almost becomes Bond. Mm -hmm. Um, really they have him, he is going to be their Bond, um, and then because he's cast as Bond, Remington Steel, which was canceled, decides we need to do more episodes because of the hype. And so they pull him out. They pull him back because of his contract, because he had a 60 day option and he doesn't get to be Bond because of that. Yeah. Um, and I just feel so bad for him because I, I want to ask you this question. There is a quite a big gap between license to kill and what we get in Goldfinger in time. There there's a there's a decent gap there. Do you feel like that if maybe Brosnan had just been Bond, we would have had less of a gap? I mean, uh, license to kill and uh Goldeneye? Yeah, Goldeneye yeah. is what I meant to say. Um yeah. I'm really glad that things played out the way they did because Look, I loved Remington Steel when that show was on the air, but I also know that you go back and look at that show, and Pierce Brosnan looks like a kid. <laughs> he needed <Yeah. laughs> he needed to age a little bit into the role. And, and look, at, at this point in 2018, looking back at Goldeneye, that movie is 20 years old, but uh, or or more. I can't remember the exact date that uh, that that came out. Uh, 95. Wow. All right. So, so it was more than 20 years yeah. old. Yeah. And and now Pierce Brosnan is in a different sort of age of his career. But um, I, I feel like 
if you had cast him in that role, and, and look, this is, well, as we say on Mission Log, this is jumping the timeline a little, but um, fast-forwarding to Bro Brosnan's portrayal of Bond, it was a lighter version than certainly what Timothy Dalton was doing, and to me it would be almost a little too much like the return to Roger Moore. So, especially if you seeing how his movies played out over time, seeing how the, the Brosnan movies played out over time. So I'm glad that we just had a, a total change of gears going to Dalton. I'm glad that Brosnan got to sort of cool out for a while. Look, I, I wish Timothy Dalton had done at least two more Bond films. Um, and, and I would have been glad if Brosnan had come in after that, too. You know, I, I think Brosnan has the uh, the genetic blessing that he ages very well. <laughs> and, you know, in his 50s, probably could have carried off playing Bond better than Roger Moore did playing Bond in his 50s. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, I can't picture how that would have maybe maybe going back to your original question matt maybe i could picture brosnan playing a prequel james bond at that age in 1987 easier than i could picture him playing a modern james bond for the 80s in 1987 yeah i, I agree with you john and and also even from the standpoint of if you're trying to differentiate go in a different direction than you were going with more then yeah, I don't think that it would have made sense to bring in Brosnan yet because like you're saying, I think that he would have been too young and it wouldn't have fit. Um, even though this one doesn't, you know, immediately seem like a sequel to um, a view to a kill. Um, it, I think just purely from wanting to go in a new direction, it's better that they went with someone else. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, the thing that I, I feel is that I, I feel bad for Brosnan because of again jumping the timeline where his series goes, um, I feel like these two Dalton movies are better movies to start off in, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and it's too bad that he doesn't get that opportunity. Um, I'm glad though. I mean, Timothy Dalton, um, and I think you know. So to kind of wrap that up, and we'll get to the next session where we just talk about him. Because of all these delays that happen. Um, He's finished with his film, Brenda Starr, and is now available to play Bond. And they had courted him before. They had courted him years and years and years ago um, to play him when Moore was still playing the role. Um, and he had told them no. He felt like he was too young to speak to that. You know, that whole idea is was Pierce too young at this point. Um, and Cubby had always liked him, and it... I mean, it's, uh, you know, Felicity. It works out perfectly for him to be able to take the role. And he goes from uh, one day filming Brenda Starr over the weekend flying to play Bond. Uh, so he is the new Bond. And I wanted to ask you guys, uh, we've touched a little bit on it, but, you know, Dalton only gets two films. But what do you think of his take of the character here in A Living Daylights? I love it. Um, have I said that enough? I, I think I said earlier that I was waiting to get to Th Timothy Dalton. Um, not to knock on Roger Moore, but I, I didn't like Roger Moore as much as I liked um, Dalton and then Connery and then Craig. Um, but um, 
I, I really think that he brings a nice difference to this role. I think that he is more serious, but I like that it doesn't seem like he needs any gimmicks or like a silly one liner to get a woman or to get stuff done or whatever. It, you know, it seems like the woman on the boat, for example, says, I just wish I could find a real man. And then he just lands there and it's like, he doesn't have to say anything. He just goes, I'm here. <laughs> That's right. This bond gets ship done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I. But yeah. He's magnificent. He really is. I mean, I, I remember liking him at the time, but the, there's something about, you know, what we've been doing here, the, this methodical study of the Bond movies in order like this, and then going through all the Roger Moore films, which, which I mostly enjoyed, but when there are clunkers, there are real clunkers, and they're painful. Um, but man, seeing Timothy Dalton swoop in on that boat and just look like a million bucks, but also look like you believe him in that world and you believe that he's been on a mission and you believe that his life was in danger. Like, everything about it, he just absolutely sells. Um, and the the humor in the movie, with rare exceptions, really works because you feel like, okay, they're not writing in jokes. They're not writing in J.W. Pepper. They're not writing in the triple take pigeon. They don't have to. If there's just a, a natural little bit of humor. I mean, Matt, you started off the show with the, the joke about knowing the restaurant in, in Afghanistan. You know, that, that's sort of a perfectly delivered James Bond line that reminds the audience, like, look, you're in a fantasy world in a movie. These people are having fun, but we're not going to stop and, like, slap you across the face with a stupid joke. And, and it's a really fine line for the Bond movies to find the the gravitas and and find the the danger in it but also lighten it up from time to time without making you just sort of cringe and go wow this is stupid but it feels like they finally realized what we've been saying this whole time with all the other movies was that you can be funny without having something ridiculous like the jw mm -hmm. peppers or the pigeons or the camel or you know anything else like that you know you can um deliver a joke like he does about karachi or um when when he says i must have scared the living daylights out of her it was just subtly funny mm -hmm. you know uh, the, the thing that i was responding to the most uh in his take on bond is the nuances that he adds to the character um the way he subtly shifts to being the sexy guy, you know, when he lands on the boat, you know, and he goes from being totally in action mode to being like, all right, time for some sex, you know, um, <laughs> to um, the point where uh, there's the shift when he's um, with Kara um, and they're at the um, amusement park mm, mm -hmm. and... There's the shift that he goes in. He turns from being sweet and kind to being the killer, to being cold. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's fast and quick. And like the the nuances that he adds to the character um, are very interesting to me. And it makes them feel more him more human because in those moments you're seeing that he's feeling betrayed, and so he turns it off. Um, you know he he has a subtlety about him and he 
again, he feels like a human being. Um, he's not perfect. You know, Dalton even said, look, Bond is not a Superman. Um, he's just a dude. So he plays him like a man. And I, I feel like you get that in this movie. Um, and, and it's because of what he's adding to the character. And I, I think part of it is that, you know, Dalton did some research by reading some Fleming to get into the mindset of this character. I think it really does show in his betrayal. And, you know, I would say so far, he's given Sean Connery a huge run for his money on being the most quintessential bond to what Fleming wrote ever. Um, and, and I think that's what we're all responding to is that Dalton is kind of nailing what we intrinsically know. Even if you haven't read any Fleming, you kind of have this idea of what the quintessential bond is like. And I think, I think he's just kind of nailing it, which makes this an absolute pleasure to be watching. Uh, as a Bond movie, especially coming off those later Moore films, because it feels like an actual character in the way that I felt like Bond was an actual character when I was watching early uh, Connery movies, or when I watched Craig movies, or even when I watched On Her Majesty's Secret Service, where the guy feels like a real person and not just an icon. I think that's really important when we have Bond and Dalton again. I th I think he's just, um, he's nailing it. So, and I like that you added that too, Matt. That he's not Superman. You know, it, he can do a lot, but he can't do everything. And so I, I like that portrayal of you know Dalton coming in as um, I'm just a guy that is doing the best he can. Yeah, we had uh, we've got all these interesting. 80s era villains in the movie um and not all of them are actually villains they they seem like they might be but they are not necessarily and i think that's one of the fascinating things and and you know we've got afghanistan with russia in the news then um kind of the rise of international arms dealers and at this point in history we're honestly not too far from russia just collapsing anyway um, so there is a change, and the movie really f reflects that. And so um, we got uh, Jodon Baker as Brad Whitaker playing the arms dealer, and he he's the part of the movie that I think is maybe a little too silly. I wish that they had reined it in just a little bit, made him a little bit more serious as a character, because he kind of feels like a doof. <laughs> But I, I like the way they set him up, though. Uh, I, I like the reveal yeah, that yes. he's a failure. And yeah, he, yeah. he's this... He, he's a pretender. Yeah, with, oh, yeah no, no, no pun intended there. Yeah, he, he's a failure with these delusions of grandeur. And he, he's pulling off the biggest con of all, which is not just making money, uh, 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 you know, shifting goods back and forth, but presenting himself as something that he's not. So I'm glad that they they gave him that edge instead of just the mustache-twirling villain who wants to take over the world. This is a guy who is trying desperately to figure out how to present himself to others, trying desperately to reach that level of the other villains that we've met. Um, so yeah, it is a little over the top. It is played a little bit comedically, 
But um, again, it's like I, I, I look at a character as fleshed out as Brad Whitaker, and then I look at a character like J.W. Pepper, and I go, you know what? I, I just, I, I'm glad there's no J.W. Pepper here. Yeah, I think that it, I like your point, sort of that he's like the blue collar villain. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> that you know, he he may come in with nothing, but he's gonna pretend until he's got nothing left. <laughs> right. Um, you know, he uh, he really gets put down by Pushkin and told, "Well, you're just a nobody." Mm-hmm. Um, but he really believes that he can, you know, be the best villain that there is. So I, you kind of admire him for that. Um. I think that he carries himself in the way that all of the villains we like do. Um, and it's definitely sort of a foreboding thing when you come into the hallway with all of the different statues, because I immediately, even on the rewatch, felt that sense of one of those is going to be a real person. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I love that stuff um, and that he sort of has weapons all over the place that he could just seemingly pick up at some point and use on you, whether you're there for a meeting or you're an actual enemy. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree that he sometimes feels like, I don't know if you noticed, he seemed to maybe have a Southern accent. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, which I thought was funny, but then also maybe kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like they were trying to portray as, you know, America as a whole being a little dumb. <laughs> well, uh, John um, Baker is from. Bond he, he movies from never Texas. do that, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, he, he's from Texas, um, but I, I, I thought you know what it, it it doesn't matter really where he's from. He's just a guy faking it, no matter what. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I just expect that he at night. He falls asleep listening to those motivational tapes. You know, like, right. I am a you strong, confident it. villain. I will be the best villain there is. Yes. I will be a villain to be reckoned with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with you guys because I, I do, what I like is the way that the character is written and everything. I do. I wish that he was played a little less silly and just a little bit more like he is somebody who takes himself very seriously, but it turns out to just be a big boob, right. you know? Right. Um, and so I, but I kind of wish that there had been a little bit more seriousness to his character. So when he turns out to be a buffoon, it was a little bit more, like shocking or something like you know it wasn't just well this guy's just gonna be mm-hmm. you're gonna thing. expect yeah, it to get silly. exactly yeah. so like you're just kind of waiting for him to fail instead of what i was hoping you know what i had hope with the movie it would it would set him up to be somebody you don't realize is going to be that so that when that happens you're like oh so that's really who this is mm-hmm. so but uh in the end um brad whitaker is great and Ah, uh, hint, hint. He might show up in a later Bond movie. Just you know, <laughs> FYI. So, and that gun with the bulletproof glass on the cover. Right? Yeah. Yes, kind of, yeah, kind of that was <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Um, I I really like uh, Koskov in the movie. Um, I love his role mm-hmm. of being uh, a villain, but he's not like mustache twirling or anything. Mm-hmm. He seems like he's having a great time, like. 
I don't know if he's just high the whole time <laughs> on some cocaine or something, but um, he really thinks he's just going to get away with it all. And um, there are points like, uh, you know, on the plane where he, Bond is figuring out how he's being played and everything. He's he's just great. Um, I just he felt like kind of a fresh take on a villain, uh, you know, uh, somebody who's really reveling in the fact that he's about to get away with all of his villainy. Yeah. Well, it, it, it just speaks to the, the thing that we're saying that everybody here feels like they belong in this world. It, you know, bond is not real world, but you have to have some kind of internal consistency. And that's the thing that throws us off about the elements that don't work in the Roger Moore movies. It, at least in this, they all feel like they belong. And, and you have a, a character like Koskov who is just over the top, but you buy it. You believe in it. It's partly the actor selling it, but it's also the way that this movie is structured where not everybody is as they seem. Everybody's got sort of overlapping yet different motivations for, for where they are and what they're doing. Um, so it, it, it really plays out in a terrific way. It doesn't just dump on you like, oh, here's a bad guy. He's got a plan. You know, it, everybody's got some sort of relationship on what those plans are. Yeah, I I love Kozgoff. Um, I thought that it was interesting having the dimension that he had, um, that, you know, you think that he's on the side with the Brits, and then you realize what he's actually up to. Um, but I think that it was a little too confusing. Um, I don't know if they just didn't give enough dialogue or if the dialogue for me anyway was a little unclear but I felt like it's hard to determine who's working for who until um, Saunders Bond's friend um, finally kind of gives him here's the deal when they're at the carnival um, I feel like before then you're really confused you know as as far as who's working for who yeah no I, I think you're right um, I don't know if that isn't intentional, they just keep everybody on their toes um, and try and keep you guessing, maybe. Because, yeah, I mean, like, and trying to figure out who Necros is, you know, aligned with and why, you know, how are they all relate to Pushkin and uh, with this, uh, you know, Brad Whitaker character. It is, there is, like, a lot going on, but at least at the very end, I don't feel like it doesn't make sense, luckily. Mm -hmm. Like they yeah, finally like it do. does come together. Yeah, yeah, it comes together at least. So I love it when a plan comes together. Um, <laughs> what did you guys think of? Um, I mean, I love John Reese davies uh. So having him play Pushkin and kind of like, I love the fact that we don't know what way he's going to go, you know? And then I just, I, I kind of love that Bond keeps making friends with all these Russians. <laughs> And that then they seem to be saying the KGB is not that bad. We're friends. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> because they keep seeming to, you know, end up partnering together against somebody else. Um, but yeah, I, I like, um, I love John Reese Davies, but I definitely liked the back and forth with um, Pushkin and with not being sure whether he's the real villain of the film or if it's Kozgoff or somebody else. Um, and I like definitely the whole scene where they're faking Pushkin's death, um, because he just says, well, then I have to die. And then you're wondering how they're going to do that. Or if Bond just went ahead and killed him then, 
Um, so that they, the fact that they play it off um, so public so that, you know, Koskoff and Necros think Pushkin is out of the picture is perfect. And then I think John Reese davies is just the greatest guy to do that because he has this um, demeanor about him that always cracks me up, whether, you know, it was Indiana Jones movies or um, Lord of the Rings or Princess Diaries 2, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is the most recent one I saw him in. Um, he He's really good at being very serious and then jumping to a joke. So I, I love him. Yeah, he's good in everything all the time. He, he's just one of he those. Really yeah, is. he's just one of those actors who, who is. So he's and he's fabulous in this. And, and, and I love the I love the danger of Bond dropping in on his room. And you really think that Bond's about to kill him. Because Dalton sells that and John Reese davies sells that moment. Um, but then their their alliance feels natural as well it, it's perfectly played he's he's just so much fun um and i do like i like you john that scene is so scary mm-hmm. um because of the way that bond's using his girlfriend and everything um well i have to say that a little more bond nudity than i remembered in this mm-hmm. movie um <laughs> um but it's 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 well used um because I think it makes Bond seem very dangerous in that moment. Yeah. Um, this is a moment where his license to kill may come into play, and he has no qualms necessarily about that. But what I love about that moment is that it, what it's doing for the bo- character of Bond, that as he says to Pushkin, I wouldn't be here if I believed Kozkov. Yeah. You know, so this this guy is... I think one of the things that I really liked about this movie is that Bond really is putting it together and he's actually doing some spy detective work Mm -hmm. and that's nice to have that back. Um, And I I think one of the things that, um, you know, makes that really cool in the movie is that we have these helpful friends that he gets throughout the movie and one of them, you know, Christy, um, you already mentioned and I really enjoyed um, his character is Saunders. Um, you know, I thought that that character was a lot of fun, mainly because I, I think he felt almost at times like the audience of the eye roll of like, oh, here we go again with the girl. Oh, here we go again. You know, um, and yet that scene, right, as he's about to leave um, his meeting with Bond, he gives him all the information. There's this like respect that he has for Bond when he sees what Bond has really been up to and why he's been doing it when he puts it all together. Like I really enjoyed that relationship because we don't get to see Bond interact with many um, other agents on the British side much. I thought that was really cool. I like that it seems like they have a really good um, almost like they're police partners uh, kind of partnership Um where even though um, in the beginning you feel like he's getting the short end of the stick, Saunders, when Bond decides to take over the plan and says, well, you know, it's on a need-to-know basis and takes off in the car with the guy. Um, And uh, Saunders is left standing there holding the guns going, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, That later he does get that rapport and you see that respect between the two of them, like you said, Matt, where... Um, it seems like they've worked together for a while. They have a trust between each other and that um, Saunders knows that he can, you know, give Bond the plans and then leave and things are going to be taken care of, basically. So, it, yeah, I 
I really liked him and kind of I think that's why his death hurts a little bit because you care about him more than you do many of the other characters. If all we had of Saunders was that opening stuff with with he and Bond kind of bickering and this little bit of one-upmanship and all that, then we wouldn't have cared. You know, it would have just been somebody else and it would have been Bond kind of being a smug jerk. But the fact that they they brought that storyline full circle, they they had them work together for a reason. So you could believe that they worked together. Um then gave his death some weight and and gave it some emotional resonance. Um, and by the way, did did Necross have to contract out with the builders of that door early on, like you know years before, just say, guys, can you? <laughs> we need to make this door really really strong, and it needs to have a remote yeah. activator in it. So yeah, <laughs> that or he is just a technical whiz so. at the local Radio Shack. I guess so. so yeah. It's probably what it is. Um, I also thought it was uh, fascinating. You know, we get Cameron Shaw, uh, one of the Afghans, uh, who obviously has been trained at Oxford. We get some um, hints of, of kind of the background of that country, what's been going on in the world at that point. And I really like the way that he and Bond work together with Kara. I think it's it's just it's really nice. Um it, and, and 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 getting to the end of the movie where, you know, he come he shows up late to the concert and he's like, "Where's James?" you know, like it just I I <laughs> really liked this character and I thought it was so great that they were kind of giving us these interesting side characters that aren't just throwaways. Like I I enjoyed his story. I I enjoyed the, even the way it starts where he's just the guy and the um the jail pretending to be kind of stupid so they don't know who he is. Like I just found um, all of that fascinating. And part of it, I just, I think he references the history of what's happening in the world during the eighties at that point. And I think they do him a real service and they do the, you know, the Afghan story, there a real service. Um, they don't downplay it or make it feel stupid or anything like that. They really um, invibe in the character with some real dignity. And I think they, it, again, it's it's a real testament to the writing in this film that they give us a character like this. He's such a standout. I mean, first of all, he photographs great, you know, yeah. looks great on film. <laughs> and, but, but for a guy who's in well less than half the movie you learn so much about him and about that world that he occupies and the political situation there they really get across so much and it, he, he's sort of riveting in, in in exposing all of that and being the, the conduit for that part of the story um he's terrific yeah i i wish we'd had more of him I agree, and I'll add that I think it was sort of like they were um, in a great way not making out Afghanistan to be a bad place overall. Like it, it felt like they weren't putting down Afghanistan as a whole. They were saying that, you know, that there's good and bad people anywhere all over the world. Um, and that, you know, there are people like Cameron who are going to be a good friend and stick up for you if you stick up for them kind of thing. And so it was nice that, you know, um, Bond didn't have to let him out of the prison cell, but he was like, yeah, you know, what do I have to lose? I don't know this guy, but, you know, maybe he's not too bad. So he tosses in the keys and then it turns out that guy can help them out later. Um, 
and I, I really especially liked, um, speaking of giving the woman a little bit of credit, um, Cameron um, seeing Kara suddenly grab his gun and go, there is more we can do to help Bond. And um, Cameron going, well, and the other guy's looking at him like, what are you waiting for? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Follow her. Um, so it, it was nice to feel like they became like brothers to her and were, you know, partnering together too. Yeah, really. I mean, just really great job. And, and it, I, I wish, um, you know, they had found a way to have him, uh, somehow in the next film, just because I, like you said, John, I feel like he's a real standout, uh, to this movie and a character in Bond lore that you'd almost want to revisit. Um, so, uh, new money penny. Um, and so, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have too much to say, uh, about Caroline Bliss. I don't really think she has too much to do. They don't give her much to do. Um, and I don't think she feels like as, rem- as memorable as, you know, uh, Lois Maxwell. I mean, obviously this is the first time that she gets to play her and she only gets to play her once more. But I don't even know if she's as memorable as um, who we'd get for Brosnan with uh, Samantha Bond uh, playing that role. So I remember this being a big deal when Caroline Bliss was announced as the new Money Penny, and it, it just uh, on a rewatch, uh, I, I don't really love what they did with the character. They sort of made her awkward, and you know what, what we love about Money Penny is this sort of mature flirtation she's the one that bond will sort he'll never get because even though she sort of wants him she's she's smarter than that <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um but i he's just the eye candy that comes through the office she's in right you know right so. right <laughs> yeah but i i really feel like they didn't know what to do with her and it's a shame because like i said they they built this up as a big deal that you know, we wouldn't have Lois Maxwell anymore, but um, I, yeah, it, it didn't land with me. I'm anxious to see if, if my opinion changes in the next movie. But I don't think necessarily it was a, a bad choice of the actress, more so just the writing of her. Totally. Um, because you, you don't get hardly any of her at all in the movie anyway. Um, which I mean, you don't usually get that much of Money Penny, but a little more, I think, than this. Um, and the way that they per- chose to portray Money Penny in this felt very um, weak, mm-hmm. as far as like um, her feelings for Bond really showing and being more than what we're used to Money Penny giving. Like, like you said, John, that she's smarter than that. Whereas in in this film, it feels like they're making Money Penny out to like constantly be pining for Bond and just, oh well, I guess I'll never get it. Right, right. Yeah, a little bit too goo goo eyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and that's yeah, that's just not. She's better than who that. We think. She's better than yeah, that. Yeah. Well, and I always like you said, John. I feel like, you know, with Lois Maxwell and her the the bonds that she um, got to play with, she has uh it is a very um mature give and take between them you know um and she gives to bond just as good as he gives to her you know and and their back and forth flirtation banter it's very consensual and everything this felt more like almost like a teenage girl looking up to the boy who's a little bit too old for her 
you know, and yeah. that that's not the feeling you want. You want them to feel like m- equals in that sense. So um, I did love because I kind of forgot that we got Felix Leiter in the movie. And I really like John Terry. This is, he he was he was very enjoyable, uh, and the way that he gets Bond to him was great. I it was fantastic. Like he knows he knows how to get Bond. <laughs> yeah, have two women pull up and say, "You want a party?" Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was great. I don't. I look. I, I I get that scene. Although I always wondered why it is that in the Bond films, like. So many times the introduction of the good agent that, that Bond is supposed to meet, whether it's uh, Tiger Tanaka or our first introduction to Felix way back in Dr. No, like they, they want Bond to think he's about to die. But, it, you know, <laughs> so, oh, no, but, but it's okay. We're good guys. Like, well, why didn't you just say, why, why didn't you just send a memo early on? It's like, yeah, your guy in Tokyo, it's uh, Tiger Tanaka. You're going to meet him, and here's how you're going to meet him. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Nobody's going to kill you on the <laughs> because, way there. Because, John, we can't give away the position. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, man, I, I honestly do not know what to make of this uh, Felix Leiter. I, I, I feel like... It, to me, the actor does not stand out. Like, I get it. Every time we reintroduce Felix, we sort of give him a fresh coat of paint. We don't know what we're going to get next time. They just, why not? We'll just recast Felix as many ways as we can. This guy feels like, to me, he stepped out of an Andy Sedaris made-for-cable movie from the 80s. I I don't, I just don't quite get him. Um, he He's not memorable. The introduction is memorable. The girls in the car, but the guy, all, all that. But but Felix himself, he he didn't land with me. Yeah, I, I don't I agree think we could give there. him enough to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I, I I guess I don't have a love or hate thing with him. He's just kind of like there. Um, and I it, I did I just say this. I, I did at least didn't feel that it was just oh we're adding one more layer, like um. It it fit organically enough because they had showed that boat that he's on yep. um, earlier, and you didn't quite know what that was just yet, but you realized that he's been under surveillance. And so their conversation about they've been working the same thing for both sides, you know, and they haven't been talking yet. I, mm-hmm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was... It was an. It was okay. I mean, the fact that he drinks Jim Bean, though, I'm really. I mean, Felix product placement. Yeah, he needs to work on his alcohol consumption. Uh, get some better stuff. But um, we do have another helpful friend, and I. I don't know if you guys were excited as I was, but having a new Aston Martin in the V8 Vantage. Whoo! This car is beautiful. It's absolutely it gorgeous. Was. And it just felt so right to be back in Aston Martin. It did. Very sleek and stylish. Um, I liked the color. I liked all of the different um, buttons that he got to push. I think that was some of the most fun of this movie was all of the gadgets in the car. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, look, it it just it it feels right that that again, it's the the production telling the audience we're getting back to some basics with Bond here. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, Roger Moore had some cool cars. Roger Moore had a car with a lot of awesome buttons in it, too. But there's something about putting Bond back in an Aston Martin where it just there's that continuity again. It doesn't have to be a strict 
story continuity. It's just something about the, the world that he inhabits, that, that of course he should be in an Aston. And it is a beautiful looking car. I, I'll take two. I think the thing that's fascinating is that for the 80s, this is a gorgeous car. The 80s aren't known for gorgeous cars, really. <laughs> but this this Aston Martin no, it's looks, for boxes. <laughs> yeah, it looks very classic and sleek, like you said, Christy. And it has all these really nice lines. And what's funny is that it actually feels more like a 60s car. Um, like it feels like um, it reminds me of some of the very late 60s uh, Mustangs. You know, with the lines that it has and things like that. Um, but it just, it, it, you know, if you're going to put Bond back in a, this is Bond's back in the saddle. He's back in the saddle again, and you know it because he's in an Aston Martin, and it just, it feels so right, you know? Um, uh, and I, I just, I like every time that the car is on screen. It's just, I'm, I'm with you, John. I'll, I'll take two. Um, and just then you one were so for the sad when it crashed. And, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, so we haven't talked about yet, but this is uh, something that's interesting. We have a Bond woman, not women. Um, we, we don't really get more than one, uh, you know, minus the pre-credit sequence. An interesting thing, in the late eighties, obviously, um, I, they even talked about it on on the extras. There's a lot of talk about monogamy and safe sex, and like we're 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 looking at at um, these kind of things differently at that time period. And so, th- this is a Bond movie where we really only have one Bond woman. Uh, and I have to say, you know, I think it felt really nice to come into this movie and only have one woman that Bond um, has a relationship with because it made it feel more realistic. It made it, like, when they are giving them those lines, it felt more real uh, because of all the stuff that they had been through. And she turns out to be pretty kick-ass, you know, um, from going to be a cello player to riding around with the, you know, Afghan uh, resistance fighters. Yeah. You know, she's she's pretty awesome. So I riding really a horse think, while holding a machine gun. Yes. <laughs> she's fantastic. Like, I really, really end up liking her. And, uh, you know, riding down a hill on a cello case uh, aside, she really, I think, she brought out a side of of Dalton where there was this there was a part of him that was actually caring towards her and loving towards her and I'm trying to think of the word like he was very um moved by her like in the moment when they're in uh Shaw's compound and she's so worried and he's just kind of holding her and hugging her and like he's being so sentimentally sweet to her in a way that feels organic and real and true uh, that you haven't really seen with Bond, except for when, uh, you know, we had Honor Majesty's Secret Service with Tracy. Like, this feels like the first time in a very long time Bond has a kind of true relationship with somebody. I just really enjoy the portrayal, this character, and I think it works. And I think she's a hallmark for uh, Bond women. 
I think so. Absolutely. Um, I, I really like that she seems to give off both that vulnerable side that she needs Bond to protect her, but then also can be trusted to be left to her own devices and do what she needs to do because Bond's still got a job to do. You know, his job is not to look after Kara. Um, I like, especially in the scene where he's driving the plane and she's trying to figure out where he is, finally figures out he's driving the plane and then she's driving beside him in the Jeep. And he's like, just get in the back. And she's going, what? <laughs> um, but it, it feels like there is a, even though he's protective of her and does seem to clearly care about her, that there's a mutual respect um, and that that he still feels like she's capable, even though she's a woman. Um, and I was especially moved when um, the scene where they're in Afghanistan and she finds out that he might just leave her and go finish his mission on his own Um that she gets upset and then he gets upset seeing her sad. Um, and that's not typically something we see Bond getting a little more emotional. So I, I liked that aspect. Yeah, I, I, she was great in it and their their chemistry and their interplay was, was really good. And it was integral to the story. Like, you know, there was something that, because I remember in 1987 when this movie came out, that the, the press made a big deal. Of, oh, there's only one Bond woman in this movie, but but that's not right because all the other movies there's been at least two or three or more, you know, and 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 trying to to make this case to say that this was a definite decision by the production to address uh, uh, AIDS and and the sort of the emphasis on monogamy at the time and all, and I thought you know what, look, let's just take it down to the story, the story that this movie needs to tell is their story. That's the focus. And it doesn't work. You can't tell that story if you just introduce a bunch of other weird plot elements. Like, look, I'll even say that for as many problems as there are with the view to a kill, um, you've, you know, Bond has a couple of hookups in that movie. And for the most part, they make sense. <laughs> you know, you go back to, um, uh, go back to the spy who loved me. Now, there, there's a chemistry there between Bond and uh, uh, Major Amasova, but it's a different kind of chemistry that that movie needs to explore. Um, this, like, like you've hit on, uh, Chrissy, is about their, um, that her vulnerability and her having these parts of the story revealed to her and then finding the strength to kind of, you know, own up to what she's got to do in, in, this, uh, in this particular plot thread of her life. So, yeah, I mean, I, it, it is a little bit of a change of pace that we don't have Bond just like hopping into bed with an enemy agent or, or whomever. You know, you kind of indicate that with the girls in the car who were sent from Felix's uh, office. But to me, it, it just sort of, Take a step back from the movie and the rest of the context and you go, well, well, yeah, they had to tell this movie this way. This is the story. This is the only way that story gets to be told. Otherwise, we're just shoehorning scenes in there that make no sense. So why would we do that? Right. Yeah. I think I think it's like a, a focus on good storytelling, not necessarily. Well, the formula has always had four women, so we've got to mm -hmm. have four women in yeah. this one just because. Yeah. And, and here's the thing: if, if, 
if that had been justified by some reason in the in this story that oh well Bond has to seduce an enemy agent or or whatever okay fine if you can justify it then you can justify it this movie doesn't need to justify something else because it works the way it is yeah uh, i mean i think that when i go back to um like on her majesty's secret service where he's sleeping with a lot of the women there but it's because he's trying to find out different things from them uh on the mountaintop, you know, at the, at the Institute. Um, and he's doing it specifically for a reason. It is part of the story. It is part of his spy work to try and understand what's happening here so he can stop a catastrophe for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and But uh, that's also the same movie in which the real love story is between him and Tracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that works so well. So, But this, specifically, the story, like you said, Christy, the, the story they're telling, this is the story, and it... It, it's about the story, and luckily we have a good story, so we really care about the character and the characterization of the two. And I think what I liked, you kind of both mentioned, there's a vulnerability to her, but I think she brings out a vulnerability in Bond, which is really neat. Yes. Um, that it's okay for Bond to, again, be human, to be a man. Um, and he's not Superman, and he's not a cold-hearted bastard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, He has feelings, and... You see that throughout the movie and the way that he reacts to her in different places. Um, because when he thinks, again, when he thinks that she's betrayed him, he turns on the coldness. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he realizes that she, um, she didn't mean to do something or whatever, like, he, he, okay, it's back. Because there's that human reaction of, oh, I've been betrayed. Like, I just love mm-hmm. the way that it, it it brings out the characterization. And they're both so well characterized that I never feel like either of them is just like taking advantage of the other or, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it everything feels very real between them. And so I, I really like that uh, about the film. And I, 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 she's, she's definitely, in the estimation of Bond women, she's become one of the top women now just because of what they do with the character, yeah. you know. Uh, so it's, it's really well written. Um Got some amazing action in the movie. Um, I mean, we got to talk about uh, the. We talked a little bit about the opening credit sequence, how awesome that was. Um, but I mean, the whole thing with the plane, <laughs> yeah, is awesome, and it still looks Intense so good. Field. Yeah, look, put put that up against any CG that's being done now and i i'm sorry that the all that stuff with that uh, uh c130 correct yeah um is just so good and uh, uh as i've said before about many other things uh, it blowed up real good mm-hmm. <laughs> well and the thing that really built the tension for me um as i'm sure it does everyone is the the cutting back and forth between Bond and Necros hanging on the bags and the one strand that's about to yes. break. And just the back and forth of they're still hanging on and it's breaking. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it it's a constant buildup. And so it's great. And then that paired with the tension of, um, as my husband would say, a woman driving. Oh, um No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, he throws that one in my face all the time, but I think it's funny. 
but, you know, she doesn't necessarily have a pilot's license. We don't right, know right. that. And so you're thinking this is a civilian who's never flown a gigantic military plane. And he's going, just hold it straight. She's going, OK. <laughs> and then she sees this going on in the background and doesn't know that this strand is about to break as well. So it, it does a lot for creating a really intense fight scene and, and last battle. Yeah, we all know she plays a cello for the living, you know? <laughs> right. She, she doesn't drive planes. Yes, yes. She didn't fly planes. Uh, and so, no, I'm right there with you. And I think, um, like you said, John, this is something that looks so good still. Mm-hmm. Uh, every bit of a special effects work here looks amazing. And when they do the whole part where the plane is going to crash and the parachute pops out with the Jeep, Everything, the way it's edited, it still looks like it really happened. Like it's especially the Jeep just sliding off. It seems so seamless. Absolutely. And it's 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 great because that part there is model work, Mm -hmm. but you can't tell. It's just so good. So I mean the action and then of course all the action happening around there is good. Um, you know, with as they're doing getting on the plane and everything, there's all of the Amazing fight work happening with the um, you know, the big old uh, dumper running through all the buildings, and you've got the Afghan rebels, you know, fighting the Russians, and it's just there's so much the explosions, that, explosions. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's a great scene. So I think it's just so well done and ends the movie so perfectly. I think, and so um, this also will be the last movie that John Barry does a score for uh, with Bond. And so I wondered what you guys uh, thought of his work here since it's the it's his last go-around. I didn't really notice that much, and I think that's a good thing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say overall. I feel like if it's really a good score that it's seamless in the background and fits the action... Um, so I, I felt like it was good and definitely didn't have anything ridiculous, like a penny whistle thrown in here and there that ruined a good scene. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, overall, you know, it, it was good. Um, I, I have to say that I think this is one of the first CDs that I owned and, and bought for myself. And, um, so I was very familiar with the music and then was really glad to rewatch the movie and recognize those music cues. I love this soundtrack from beginning to end. I, I love the the AHA theme song. I love the stuff that the Pretenders contributed. And I love John Barry's Bond music in here because it's, it, it is very much of the time, but it's not dated and cheesy of the time. It, it just fits sort of perfectly where you're introducing more uh, electronic instruments into the score. You're, you're kind of modernizing what we know about Bond, um, but it doesn't feel suddenly dated. And let's face it, we've we've definitely heard some places in Bond soundtracks where it just suddenly feels dated, like it was good for a second, maybe when that movie came out, and then it stopped being good. Cold night! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I love, love, love this soundtrack. In fact, when I leave here, I will probably put that on in my car and listen to it on the way home. <laughs> uh, 
uh, John, just just no speeding. Uh, I, I sometimes know. I can't help myself when I put on a bomb. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. And no missiles. Oh, yeah, no see, missiles. You have to keep um, conditions. How dare you? Yeah, it was really cool because, and it was really interesting learning that John Barry, um, he they recorded the orchestra, and then they overlaid on top of that the the synth music and so it was the first time that that had ever been done where they had recorded an orchestra and then they overlaid on top the the synthesizer work um and i think for the most part i you're right john it really does work here it, and it works for the film it, it never really stands out in the sense of like pulling you out like oh that sounds like you know lady hawk mm-hmm. um so it's it's really I think it's really effective for the film, and there's some points where it's so very classic James Bond. It it's helping to sell Dalton's first film as fitting in with the rest of the canon of James Bond perfectly. I think it's doing exactly what it needs to do. Um, you know the theme's not bad. You know it's not one of my favorites, but it's not awful or anything. So there's nothing wrong with Aha's music. Um, year or the pretenders work so i think it at all in all um i got what do you rate this because i feel like um i feel like we got good things to say so for me i feel like it really originally it was lower on my list and has now risen back up um closer to the top of my favorite bond films because of number one timothy dalton Number two, Jonathan Reese davies um, And then three, just having, like we all said, a compelling story and feeling like everyone contributing to it wanted that to be the number one goal. To bring it back down to some basics of what we know of Bond, maybe so that you're more okay with a transition to a new Bond. Um, I think that... Um, the actress that played Kara, I'm forgetting her name, but did a, an excellent job um, in being someone respectable that's a good equal for Bond, but also having some vulnerability. And I think that the villains really worked here, even though, you know, like you were saying, Matt, that Whitaker could be a, a little bit of a doof sometimes, um, that he was still kind of creepy and um, you felt like he was, you know, meant what he said and that there really was a lot going on with him and Koskoff and, and Necros was really creepy to me, just even as a henchman. Um, so I, overall, I guess I would give it a eight out of 10 um, missile launchers. Um, nicely said, Christy, because I think that when I, when I first saw this movie in theaters, I, I liked it. And I really liked Timothy Dalton as Bond. But I didn't love this movie. And I think with the distance of time and my own maturity, because, I mean, I I was a kid when this came out, right? And I was used to Roger Moore, and I was used to the -the over-the-top spectacle of the Bond films, right? So so I liked this, but, but it felt like something was wrong. It felt like something was missing, even though I loved this new guy playing Bond, right? Well, of course they did, because he was Prince Baron and Flash Gordon, and no role is cooler than that ever. And you love and Flash I love Gordon. Flash As Gordon with a passion. It, yeah, I mean, we talked about it <laughs> yeah. on the 602 oh. app, so. <laughs> so, um, but now rewatching it, 
and and like I said earlier, rewatching it after studying the Bond films in order and and really studying the Roger Moore movies, wow! I mean, this just hit me like a ton of bricks. How different and how inspired it was to make it different and bring in this actor and let him do his thing and inhabit Bond the way he's going to inhabit the role. Um, but the story was much more engaging to me on on a rewatch now than it really ever had been before. And I think um, maybe the the politics and the, the geopolitical aspect of it felt much more real, even though there is no Soviet Union now, but we all have an understanding of Afghanistan. We all have an understanding of people selling arms. We, we all have these sort of understandings now in the modern world of what those things mean. So uh, I was much more engaged in the story this time, and I was much more engaged in the the Bond and Kara relationship than I probably was when this originally came out. So, um, yeah, doing doing this show, like you, really improved my appreciation of this, really enhanced my appreciation of it. So whereas before I would have said, like, oh, okay, yeah, th this is on the the better end of a mediocre Bond film, maybe a 6 out of 10, something like that. Now I'm going to say it's uh, it's an 8, 8 out of 10. It's 8 electronic key fobs out of 10. <laughs> Man, that's, that's awesome. Um, no, I, I, I think you guys are encapsulating everything that I'm going to say. So I'll keep it short and sweet. This movie really rose in my estimation I do think that part of that has to do with the drudgery that we had kind of been in for the last couple of movies, last few movies. But at the same time, looking back through the lens of a little bit of maturity, I, I as well, John, I think that this is just a much better movie. And when I think about the movie story-wise, it's a much better movie. There is a good story here. There is a there's a lot going on. It all fits together. It all comes together. Um, nothing feels so outlandish that I just want to like roll my eyes. And the beauty of letting Bond be more human in the same way that Daniel Craig was, I think, and, and what we all praise for him. And I just... I feel like, you know, Dalton just won't get his due because he's a little bit before people are ready for this. Um, but it's a great movie. It's a great Bond movie. It's a fun movie. It's, it's I, you know, I rewatched this um, probably about two months ago just because I hadn't seen it in so long and I just wanted to kind of get myself in a different mind frame than we, we were with more. And so I was so glad because I, and watching it again, I was never bored or anything. Like I'd just seen this a couple months ago, but I wasn't bored at all. This is such a great, fun Bond movie. I'd say it's one of the better Bond movies. In fact, I have a list on um, letterbox.com of my, and I've added this now. So there's 11 Bond movies and they're in my top 11. Um, <laughs> this is in it now. Because wow. it's just that yeah. good. So I would say that this is 8 out of 10 Aston Martins. Because, and, and I would love to have 8 out With of 10 skis. Aston Martins. With skis. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Must have <laughs> yeah. skis. So I, I am so glad that we are here. And, and it's going to be a lot of fun this year because we've got this. 
Then we'll have Brosnan coming up, and we at least have some good movies to talk about. So I'm so excited um, to be back. Uh, we're probably going to be releasing a Bond episode every other month, so you have time to be able to watch and digest uh, along with us. But we're really excited because we'll be wrapping up the Bond series until uh, whenever they bring out the new Craig film. So really excited about that. Uh, thank you so much to the associate producers we have here through Patreon, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson. Really appreciate them being with the show so long and uh, making sure that everything on Trek FM keeps coming to you each and every week. Uh, it's a huge enterprise. We have so much happening here on Trek FM and we can't do it alone. So go over to patreon.com slash Trek FM. You can see how you can be part of our team. Uh, make sure everything we do keeps coming to you each and every week. So many great perks for you. Um, so check it all out at patreon.com slash trekfm. Christy, it's a joy to be back with you here in the new year talking about Bond. But let everybody know where they can find you if they want to catch up with you and all the other things you're doing. Sure. So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter, primarily at Bespin Bell. Um, and I am also, um, in addition to being on 602 Club, talking about Bond and other geeky topics sometimes, um, I also am now officially co-hosting a podcast called Galactic Fashion with Teresa Delgado. Um, so we'll be doing that monthly. Um, so look for me there. And John, uh, just fantastic to be back with you, my good sir. Uh, but uh, you have so much going on <laughs> these days. So let everybody know where they can find you and what else you're doing. Well, uh, production is kicking up here at Roddenberry World HQ. So uh, check things out either at Roddenberry.com or podcast dot roddenberry.com there's mission log there's mission log live uh there are friends at uh, priority woman one and women at warp but we have some new stuff cooking up so uh check back check often at uh, podcast.roddenberry.com and if you want to talk to me directly either at mission log pod or at dvd geeks we're uh, more than happy to geek out about bond and other nerdy pursuits I just love how retro your uh, handle is now. So uh, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> Thank um, you. But uh, you do. You really do want to follow John and Christy and everything they're doing. So make sure you check them out on social media uh, and with their other podcasts. So do yourself a favor. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. I'm also on Instagram under the same name. I moonlight here on the network with... Um, Chris Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine on the Orb. You can also find me on the Nerd Party Network talking about Harry Potter on a show called Outpost. We go through one chapter at a time the whole series. So we're right there, almost done with The Prisoner of Azavan. Check that out. I am on another podcast called Aggressive Negotiations, which you can uh, find on the Nerd Party Network. And uh, my good friend John Mills and I talk all about Star Wars. Um, we have really been digging into some uh, Last Jedi content, so make sure you check it out. I think you'll love it. Uh, last but not least, um, doing kind of what John does on Mission Log, but with film, morals, meanings, messages about movies but specifically through the lens of faith with my friend courtney over on cinema stories so you can check that out uh and thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now here you